Hello, this is part four. Dr. Singleton, your professor for course A101-B114, Introduction to Hermeneutics. We're picking up now on covenants. And as you may be clearly aware, covenants are a big thing in scripture uh, with God and I believe with his people. So let's uh, let's begin covenants. Looking at the covenants of the Bible with the meaning to Israel as a nation uh, to which they were all given and the importance they have to the church today to whom they are provided for edification. By definition, the Hebrew birth is translated will, testament, and covenant that originates from the word to cut. The Greek diatechi mentions it 300 times in the Bible. Something that is critical to note is that all covenants are not mutual agreements. You might want to remember that. Meaning, the if I do this, then you do that. Or if I do that, you'll do this. In the strictest biblical sense, it is a relationship, commitment, and an obligation one makes upon their own self. This is to certain. This is this is to certain conditions rather than a joint obligation. Commonly, the name of God was invoked in the covenant to make it more binding and solemn. This is not unlike today where people invoke a name in a promise as to give it more value. In fact, you may be clearly aware that some might say, well, I swear on my grandmama's grave and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, sometimes grandma ain't even dead, but it's something that a person says as to give greater credence, if you will, or value to the promise, the oath, the covenant they're entering into. And and as we go through these covenants, I believe you'll be able to see a number of things that's done today, which really gets its root from the Bible. Now, when we look at, at covenants, a marriage is an example of a covenant. You might want to remember that. Uh, there in Malachi 2.14 says, Yet ye say, wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And so we see that the marriage is a covenant that is also recognized by God, not just one that's recognized in the land. Commonly, a gift that could be looked upon and remembered was used to seal a covenant, such as in Genesis 21, 30. Um, and he said, for these seven ewe lambs shall thou take of my hand 
that they may be a witness unto me that I have digged this well. And so uh, here uh, uh, Abraham is talking to Abimelech and he's letting him know, hey, this is this is set aside for this cause to say this well is mine. It belongs to me. Um, some additional markings include fences, stone heaps and things of that sort. Now, there are three major types of covenant. There is man to man, which is kind of what the Abraham and Abimelech um, covenant was and or marriage is a man to man kind of covenant. But then there is the superior to the subordinate covenant, such as with Nebuchadnezzar when he imposed the covenant on Zedekiah in Ezekiel 17. Then there is the God to man covenants. So there's man to man, superior to subordinate and God to man covenants. Since man is not a relative equal with God and is in no position to impose a covenant on God, nor did God impose his covenant on man, then by default, we see that God imposed covenants relating to him is really self-imposed. He imposed the covenant on himself. Now, let's just look at a, a few of the uh, preparations, if you will, or practices that were used in covenants. Well, because covenants were designed, number one, because covenants were designed to be permanent counsel of and deep thought, along with much prayer, preceded entering into this kind of relationship. In fact, there in Proverbs 24, 6, the scripture lets us know that in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Number two, they commonly looked for witnesses that both parties trusted who would be a mediator between the two, uh, such as in in uh, Matthew. Uh, the scripture speaks to us in 18 and 16, and it declares that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. But also throughout scripture, you'll find that witnesses were sought. In fact, uh, God speaking on an occasion, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you that I've set before you blessings and curses, death and life says choose life. Number three, things were exchanged such as weapons, garments and jewelry. In fact, when it came to the clothing, the, the different tribes wore clothing that were uh, indicative of the tribe they were a part of today. And, and so if someone had a certain type of clothing, you could tell what tribe they were from. And, and we see that today. In fact, uh, there are gangs that uh, carry that out. In fact, uh, you know, we hear about the Crips and the Bloods. And so they have colors and not just them, but other gangs as well or other groups sometimes have uh, clothing that identifies them with certain others. Number four, when the girdle 
or belt was exchanged, it represented my strength is your strength. In fact, uh, you may remember Tamar and Judah and um, Tamar uh, had put on the harlot's garment, took off her widow's garment and Judah went into her. But she asked him for something and she got it from him. And so much later, when now he's, he's, you know, things come up, she's in a way a mother's way. And and now there's a thinking of stoning her and the like. And uh, she had what he gave him. And and Jacob later says or, or Judah later says she was more righteous than I was. And how was that? Because they could see she had entered into a covenant with him and something was taken by the covenant. It ended up saving her life. Number five, these matters were serious um, that they would stand. They were so serious until many times the persons in the covenant would stand in the midst of an animal that they had already split, signifying that I will give my life to uphold this covenant as this animal gave his life. Further, Sometimes they would cut their wrist and mingle their blood with their hands clasped in the air as a sign that they were making pointing toward God as their witness. Now, this is also something that uh, gangs have done. Many have done. And uh, uh, some of you listening to this lecture might have even done it when you were young. And and folks said, well, we're going to cut ourselves and mix our blood. So we become blood brothers and uh, things of that sort. Well, this is one of the things that happened in the days, um, biblical days that carries on to this day. In fact, uh, beyond that, they would then burn or cauterize that area with a hot iron, branding iron commonly to make a mark that could not be erased and would be a continual reminder of the covenant that was entered into. Number six, they also had other visual reminders, such as rolls of trees, hedges, heaps of stone, plants or other things. Uh, the last one I'll mention here is the meal. They had a meal or a covenant meal, if you will, commonly consisting of wine and bread. Now, we do this today when the Lord Jesus uh, supped with his disciples prior to the crucifixion. When they ate of the bread and, and when we eat it today, it represents us eating the body of the Lord and us becoming one with him, our body with his body. And the drinking of the cup representing his blood that uh, uh, drinking his blood, it becomes our blood and we are one. It is, as it were, together as one divided by none. So let's look at some of the biblical covenants. There is first the Edenic covenant, E-D-E-N-I-C, Edenic Covenant. This is the covenant that was given in Eden. It is a conditional covenant where God uh, provided all that was needed 
for mankind in the Garden of Eden. Basically, he says, I'll supply everything for you as long as you don't eat of that tree, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, you can find scripture relating to that in Genesis 1, 26 through 31, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Followed by that, we have the Adamic covenant, A-D-A-M-I-C. This is a covenant made to Adam. Uh, they're in Genesis three sixteen through 19. This covenant is conditional. Uh, it declares that man will work by the sweat of his brow. Um, it is without appeal. It is a set covenant. And so I, I just spoke of the Edenic covenant being conditional and now the Adamic covenant as being unconditional. So Edenic conditional, Adamic unconditional. Let me explain those terminologies, those phraseologies. A conditional covenant is a covenant that has conditions with it. That is the type of covenant. If I do this, then you must do that. Or if you do that, then I'll do this. That is, in essence, a conditional covenant. There are conditions. It doesn't just happen. There's a, a number. One thing is predicated on another. One thing is contingent upon another. An unconditional covenant, however, has no conditions. You don't have to do anything. This is just the way it is. So the Bible says, as long as the earth remained, there would be seed time and harvest. And he talks about, you know, day and night and all of that. Well, that has nothing to do with whether you live righteous or wicked. The sun's still going to rise in the east and set in the west. And there's still going to be winter and summer. There's going to be hot and cold, as it were. It's unconditional. The third covenant is the Naoic covenant. This is the covenant of Noah. It is, you find it there in Genesis 9, 1 through 18. It is an unconditional covenant that includes human government to curtail sin. And so as you look at that, there's a, a host of things there. Then there is the Abrahamic covenant. This is a covenant God made to Abraham. Perhaps you all are very familiar with it. Um, but there in Genesis 12, 1 through 4, 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 14 through 17, chapter 15, verse 1 through 8, as well as chapter 17, 1 through 8. Uh, this is a covenant that God made to Abraham. And he declares in that covenant that through Abraham and through his seed, which would be as the uh, stars of heaven, and or the sand by the seashore, his his uh, uh, descendants or his seed would be like that innumerable, if you will. And God says, hey, those that bless you, I'm going to bless those that curse you. I'm going to curse. It is an unconditional covenant that we, the body of Christ today, are also benefactors, though it was given to Israel, we receive a measure of this because we've been engrafted in. Then there is the Mosaic covenant. This is the covenant that God made with Moses. And uh, you can find things about it there in Exodus 19, 
four through six or uh, nine one nine and eight uh, twenty verses one through thirty one. Um, this this covenant is one that is conditional, and it includes um, three hundred and sixty five prohibitions plus. 248 demands, a total of 613. In this, some of those prohibitions and commands dealt with hygiene, diet, marriage, sex, finances, government, political alliances, and welfare. So uh, looking in, in those Verses, even some things in Leviticus and so forth. These are are um, parts of the covenant God made and gave to Moses. It's called the Mosaic covenant. Then there is the Palestinian Deuteronomic covenant uh, found there in Deuteronomy 31 through 10. It is an unconditional Slash conditional covenant, a part of it, if you will, was conditional, but is considered an unconditional covenant. And it has been said that Jews are proof of God's existence. The fact that they're here is proof of God's existence. Then there is the Davidic, Davidic covenant. It is the covenant God made with David, the Davidic covenant. Uh, you can find things relative to it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 4 through 16, 1 Chronicles 17, 3 through 15. It is an unconditional covenant as well. It, it speaks of the fact that David lineage would endure forever. There would always be a man, if you will, someone in his lineage that would be on the throne. In fact, Jesus is part of that. And um, and then last but not least, there is the new covenant. There in Jeremiah 31, 31, you can see a part of it. It is, again, an unconditional covenant, meaning there's no condition. And Jeremiah spoke of it over a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born. Jesus is the priest of the new covenant. So now um, these are laid out in chronological order, meaning the order in which they initially happened. Um, and, and so I've put them in an acronym to facilitate your being able to remember all eight of them. And uh, the word is Adam Penn, A-D-A-M-P-E-N-N. And so uh, as you as you know, going through those those covenants, there's two that starts with with a. And so Adam, you might say the Adamic, um, Davidic. Uh, uh, mosaic and um Abrahamic covenant and then the Palestinian, the Edenic, the uh, New Covenant and the Noahic covenant or, you know, any order you want to put them in. But I just thought that Adam Penn might 
um, kind of jog your memory to those covenants. You will need to know that. And so that hopefully that'll help you to record it. It is uh, not important that you remember the order, but simply that you remember all of them. So those things being said, I now want to and shall go into things that you definitely want to remember. So I'm going to go through a number of them. Um, This will give you some insight uh, relative to the things that you want to remember and um, it'll help you. Okay, we know that the first step uh, to Bible study is to read the you know the answer. You want to remember that you you to read the Bible. Um, when it comes to lower criticism, um, lower criticism is also known as textual criticism. You can find that in Verkler's book. Um, uh, hermeneutics is often defined as an art and a science. It's often defined as an art and a science. Historical criticism is also known as higher criticism. The field of biblical study that conceptually precedes all others is the study of canicity. We know that you you want to remember uh, canicity. Um, when it comes to the Bible, we should expect it to stand against every challenge that it's faced with. A decision uh, or, or deductive reasoning is a decision that's based on a prior assumption. An idiom is a figure of speech common to a culture or society or a group even. Um, We know that personification, analogy, hyperbole, simile, metaphor, idiom, those are all parts of speech. Um, Beyond our Bible study, when we look at inductive Bible study in the final analysis, it's not just about getting information. It's not just about knowing what's there. It is also about personal application. I'm supposed to take this word that I've read or learned, this truth that I've now come to acquire and I'm to apply it to my life personally, not that I read it and try to put it off on somebody else. I want to make a personal application of the word. Now, when it comes to synthesis in my inductive study pursuits, synthesis helps us in aiding our memory and finding the common denominator. So we want to remember that. Um, When it comes to uh, what we're going to get out of our study, we do not in and of ourselves possess the ability to to really get out of the word what's there. You know, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has to illuminate truths 
at the level of our comprehension. Um, when it comes to um, the hermeneutical pursuits, we mentioned that there are gaps. There's gaps between in the timeline. There's gaps in the cultures. There's gaps in the language that we use. There's geographical and biological, historical gaps. You want to remember those things, cultural gaps and so forth. And so we, we do want to, you know, you want to look at that again or listen. Actually, that's in the lecture and you'd want to refresh yourself on that. Um, uh, hermeneutics is subcategorized in two different parts. We have the uh, special and general. Um, so you, you want to be mindful of that. Beyond that, um, as we just said in this um, lecture, that you want to remember that all covenants are not mutual agreements. Some covenants are self in well, covenants really are self-imposed. I bind myself to my word. In fact, uh, years ago, uh, folk would say uh, your word is your bond. And uh, it was basically saying your word binds you. And, and even the Bible says that you're going to be judged as it were a part of you're going to be bound by the words of your mouth. And so um, we understand that covenants, all covenants are not mutual agreements, even as it was with God, that he made a covenant. And there was nothing man had to do in it. It's just that God binded. Uh, had bound his own self to what he said. And I'm just glad today that he keeps his word. Um, an explicit definition really deals with things specific An explicit definition deals with things that are, that are specific. Um, we know that a hyperbole is really not to be taken literally. A hyperbole is not to be taken literally. Now, the Lord Jesus many times spoke in parables, but we also see parables in the Old Testament as well. And parables were designed to uh, reveal truth to some and hide truth from others, as it were. So it had a, a, a dual role. Uh, in fact, the disciples asked on an occasion, they said, well, you know, why, why do you always speak in parables even to them? And he says, hey, it's given to you to know, but to them it's not given to know. And so we see that the parable had the capacity while in everybody's listening, only certain ones understood. Um, when it comes to principles that's, that, that you would use in biblical hermeneutics, there are eight that you need to know. Uh, there are eight that you need to know. There are the uh, context and culture, the historical, the uh, parallel passages, the purpose of the book, the literary style, the meaning of the words and how to make an application and uh, all that you can find in the lecture. It's true that generally a passage will be displayed more than once in the Bible. More commonly than not, 
If you can find it one place, there's usually another place where you'll find something of that sort or something relating to it close enough. Um, in your Bible study, you won't always be successful in terms of, let's say you were trying to search something out. You may not always be successful in getting the answer that you might have been looking for just because you sat down to study or to read and what have you. But we know that God has a time for revealing truth to us. Also, we know that many times a scripture has more than one meaningful application. There's more than one thing we can uh, derive from it. Um, when it comes to the Bible, we should never think of the Bible as containing the word of God. We should never think of the Bible as containing the word of God, but that it is the word of God. If we think of it in the context of containing the word, then the possibility is real for it to contain more than the word of God or something in addition to the word of God, not more as in value, just more as in other. But um, we can one might consider that it also contains something else. Well, no, that's not it. The Bible is the word of God, unadulterated word of God without error. Uh, beyond that, we, we, we don't go into the word to try to get some, some supersized truth that we want to come out and impress somebody with. Now, I promise you this, as you spend time in the word and as you grow in it, the Lord is going to, uh, cause you to, to see things you hadn't seen before. It will enrich your life. That's, that's just the way it is. And, and you can't really get around that. Um, but I don't think any of us want to either. Um, when it comes to any biblical passage, the whole Bible is open for um, review or for study or for evaluation of a passage. We can look at the whole Bible and we want to notice where every word is because its placement is important. We, we want to note that its placement is important. And unless God give us understanding of a text, we just won't see and or understand a text. Now, uh, it doesn't take uh, someone that's super smart to know that we really need to pray if we're going to go into the word. Because we're talking about a word from an eternal God that a finite being such as you and I are trying to comprehend. And so we really need God to um, help us with that. And just understanding some hermeneutical pursuits, we understand that um, how the word is, the context in which we find it, that helped to limit its intended meaning. Now, there are times when sin will will hinder us from really being real clear on what some things in the Bible it's sad. It's saying we, we I mean, the sin just kind of gets in the way it uh, Bible says that when it's finished, it brings forth death. Well, before it brings forth death, it also brings forth some blindness Well, you don't see what you should see. It brings forth some deafness where you don't hear what is what is life to hear uh, beyond that. Whenever we go to the word, we should approach the word with a bias. We should approach the word 
uh, leaning into the fact that uh, no matter what word of God is right, it's true all the time is without error. Even though we may not be able to answer every question placed to us, we may not be able to identify all the truths therein. We just know that it is truth. Uh, when it comes to uh, the the evangelicals, um, evangelicals are pre-millennialist. Most evangelicals are pre-millennialist. And so uh, just 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 all of that I'm going through right now. This is all food for thought. This is all food for thought. You want to remember all that I'm saying. Um, also, when when we look at uh, special literary forms, we find that there are five of them. And, you know, you can you can review that there in uh, Verkler's book, page uh, 184 and 80, 185. Um, does one does one's uh, spiritual condition have anything to do with their perspective on Scripture? I declare it does cause the word is a living word. According to John six sixty three, the Lord Jesus speaking says his word is spirit and they are life. They are spirit Life And so where we are spiritually has a lot to do with our ability many times to uh, comprehend the the word that's given. Um, I shared with you that in this course, we would uh, go into what is meant by rightly dividing the word of truth. Second Timothy two fifteen. Well, there's there's a twofold uh, thing to that. One is to preach the word. The other is to interpret it correctly. All right. To preach the word and interpret it correctly. Or one might say teach the word and interpret it correctly. Um, there are four different um, applications that is commonly seen or could be seen throughout biblical text. It's not so with every passage, but it is included in the total package of the Bible uh, where there is a practical, a secondary, a prophetic and a mystical application to various texts. Now, we know that historical passages are always to be taken literally, always to be taken literally. Uh, excellent way when you have done your inductive study and you come to your conclusion, an excellent way to test your conclusion is to play the adversary. You play the adversary. Um, understanding that there is no quick way to get Bible knowledge. If you're going to get Bible knowledge, it's going to take you some time. Now, when it comes to principalizing, um, it, it focuses in uh, the principles implicit, implicit in a story that are applicable across time and cultures. When you start talking about principalizing, uh, in the word, there are some principles that are not factored into regardless of time or land or tongue or anything else. It just is, as I shared earlier about, you know, seasons, these things, they'll, they'll always be day and night. 
So whatever the length of day, whatever the length of night, these this is a principle that God ordained. He ordained a principle that the water should not overstep their bounds, as it were. The sea should not overstep its bounds. Um, let's see now. OK, OK, OK. Um, under the new covenant. We can find forgiveness of sins. We find the, the giving of a new heart. In fact, God says, I'll, I'll, I'll give them a heart of flesh. I'll take out, as it were, the stony heart. We find the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. The new covenant, Jesus is the, the priest of that covenant. And that's the one we live under today. Uh, the anti-millennialist, <coughs> excuse me, anti-millennialist theory or theology is not a part of that. It's not a part of the new covenant. Um, when we talk about metaphors, a heart of stone is a metaphor. A heart of stone is a metaphor. Now, uh, there are some tools I had spoken to you in one of the lectures and we're talking about uh, some tools that could be used in your inductive study and in your personal studies. Um, Easy to remember the Hebrew uh, concordance and Hebrew lexicon, the Greek concordance, Greek lexicon. Um, it just, you know, that, that's just good to remember. You want to remember all this stuff. Um, I, I've already shared with you concerning the eight covenants. Um, again, Adam Penn would be an easy way, I think, or way added to help jog the memory so that's Adam Davidic Abrahamic Mosaic Palestinian Edenic Noahic and new um, as you as you were going through your your study in Vukler's book there on, on page 58 and he talks about uh, a favorite phrase of Calvin you want to be mindful of that you want to be mindful of that phrase. And um, those are the primary things that, that you will need to know. Um, uh, so that's, uh, that's basically it. All right. I do want you to know that I thank God for each one of you. I trust that you have been enriched. I look forward to us uh, connecting. And this does it for now.